Well, today we're jumping into a three-week sermon series on money. Not because the church is in trouble and needs more of it, but because Jesus starts talking about it right here in Luke chapter 12. And I can summarize my whole message in one short sentence. You ready? If you're going to check out on me, get it before you go somewhere else. He owns it. We use it. And so we are just stewards of God's money. And so guess what? That's why Jesus talks about it so much. Did you know that? Sometimes you hear the criticism. All the church does is talk about money. That's so not true, at least not at this church. But if we're following Jesus and we want to emphasize what he wants to emphasize, guess what? He talked about money a lot. Why would he do that? Do you know Jesus talked more about money than heaven or hell? Why? It's because Jesus knows something about money that we often fail to recognize. You ready? Money is a revealer of hearts. Oh, we can't see hearts, but you can see where their money goes. You can see what someone does with money, and it tells you something about their heart. And Jesus is after the hearts. But now let me say this as we get going in this short little series. I know there's some of you sitting here, I know, that are struggling just to make ends meet. You've lost jobs, you've taken pay cuts, you've had to adjust and scale things down. But there's others of you that God is still entrusting with great financial resources. You realize everyone was not crushed by COVID? You do realize that. Everyone was not crushed by COVID. Even as I made phone calls when we were in the worst of times and shut down for 17 weeks and I was trying to encourage people and call around every day for a couple hours and see how people are doing... I had lots of people say, oh, Pastor Brad, oh, wow, we have so much money. Whatever the field was, the business they were in, we know God doesn't want us to keep all this. We're having to pray, what should we do with this? We're making money. Everybody wasn't crushed. And there are actually some people that God gives the gift of making money. You're like, give me that. (laughs) There are actually people that God, but be careful how quickly you say that. It's a huge responsibility to be given that gift. But there are some people that God gives the gift of making money. But now here's the category you've been waiting on. There's a whole lot of you somewhere in the middle between no job and gift of making money. So here's what I want you to get. No matter where you are today, don't check out on me and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Wherever you are today, I believe God and his son Jesus has a word about money, the place of money in your life. And here's why. Because over the course of your lifetime, whether you ever become a millionaire, do you realize over the course of your lifetime, thousands of dollars will pass through your hands? It's just part of living life. Jesus wants you to know how to handle it and how to keep from being destroyed by it. Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions that statement is that just like completely opposite of our world right in marketing and commercials and everyone life does not consist in the abundance of possessions and he told them a what oh why does jesus ever tell a parable Is it a warm bedtime story with Uncle Jesus to snuggle down? He tells parables to shock us and shake us out of our conventional ways of thinking. Track through the Gospels. Every time he tells a parable, it's to shock because he knows what people are thinking conventionally is so not what they should be. It's true right here with money. So now he's going to tell 
a parable. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Again, don't check out. You say, oh, rich man, good, not me. You live in America. That's you. There you go. Now everybody's listening. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, do you notice a pattern of pronouns there? It's I, it's my, it's I, it's my, it's I, it's my. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods Laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich toward God. So what would Jesus want us to know about money from this passage? Well, I want to show you five ways that you can fight hard. And I hope you realize it'll be a fight. You think about it, we have we fight to stay sexually pure. We fight on multiple levels as Christians in a world like this. If you could just adopt the mindset that you better be fighting against covetousness and fighting to not get sucked into the conventional way of thinking about money, you do so much better. It will be a fight. You will not drift into handling money the way God and Jesus says to. It will have to be intentional. Intentional. So I'm going to show you five ways you can fight hard to keep money from getting the wrong place in your life. Let me shatter another misnomer. Money is not the root of all evil. If you've been saying that, please stop. The Bible teaches in Timothy, money is, the love of money is a root. It doesn't even say the root. It is a root of all kinds of evil. But money can do great good. The goal needs to be, how do I keep it from having a wrong place in my life? How do I keep it from distracting me and even worse than that, destroying me? Here's the first, number one, don't let your world shrink down to the size of your latest money problem. Look at verse 13 again. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What's going on right here? Well, this is not as random and odd as it might seem to us. Because in that day, they would often go to rabbis to settle a dispute regarding money, inheritance, legal issues. This was not uncommon. But there is a problem in verse 13. This was not uncommon, but there's a problem. It's his timing and his priorities. Because the way this man just blurts it out shows he really hasn't been listening to anything Jesus has been saying up to this point. It's like he's been holding his breath, waiting for the right moment to jump in and hijack this conversation and take it in a different direction. Because I don't want you to miss the fact, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon, you guys. A really sober and serious one, in fact, about heaven and hell, life and death, future judgment. You say, how do you know all that, Brad? Remember, I keep telling you, when you read your Bible, push it back and stretch it out. Context is is so helpful. All you have to do is go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and read the first 11 verses. And you'll see what Jesus was in the middle of talking about. He is bringing a serious and sober message to help people think about what matters most. To help people think about their biggest problem. To help people break out of this world that shrinks you down to right here, right now. And this guy hasn't been listening. Look at verses 4 and 5. Show you what I'm talking about. This is Jesus speaking in this sermon. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, 
has authority to cast into hell. He's talking about God. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's like this man. It's like this man in the crowd has just been standing there thinking, yeah, 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 Jesus, whatever, heaven, hell, life, death, future judgment. I need your help right here, right now, because I've got a money problem. And when I have a money problem, there's nothing else I can think about or care about. You know anybody like that? What about you? When you have a money problem, is that all you can think about? And is that all you care about? And don't hear what I'm not saying, because notice, just like in Matthew 5, when he talks about get the log out of your eye and... He doesn't really care what the issues are between you and somebody else. Whatever your part is, it's a log. He doesn't, even in this instance, it's very likely that his brother is doing him unjustly regarding this. Jesus doesn't dig into it. Jesus still wants him to have the right kind of heart. And Jesus can see our hearts and likely knew there's more to this than just some unjust dealings with his brother. This man's heart needs help. And the crowd that's standing here needs help on this issue. And so since he interrupted me and took it in the direction of money and possessions, I'm going to tell this parable. He knows how much help we need in this area. It's possible that his brother was treating him unjustly. But what I'm saying is, and what Jesus is saying is, even if you do have a money problem. Don't, don't start living as if it's your biggest problem. And if you are a believer, don't stop rejoicing or being aware. We tend to begin to focus on what we don't have, what we don't have, what we don't have. You'll do so much better when you keep framed up around what you might not have, what you do have. Oh, I've been forgiven. All my sins, past, present, future. Oh, he's with me. I have his spirit. There's resurrection power. He promised to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. I've got all the promises of God and the presence of God and my biggest problem solved. So don't hear me saying no one here should think they have a money problem. No one here that knows Jesus should ever begin to think it's your only or biggest problem. Because it'll change how you go through it and not in a good way. Jesus, in verses 1 to 11, is talking about our biggest problem. Death, heaven, hell, future judgment. Number two, maintain a wartime mentality about money and covetousness. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Guess what? Just like pride, we love to look at someone else and say, oh, there's a proud man or woman, blah, blah, blah. When I land my plane in Austria and the way the sun sets on the ocean and when we were at our other house, (laughs) we're like, oh, wow, what a proud person. And we don't see pride in ourselves. We love to spot it. That's, guess what? Covetousness is like that. We love to see it in others and say that's what it looks like. And we fail to see it in ourselves. That's why he says, oh, my goodness, take care and be on guard against, say the word, all covetousness. It comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms. And it's very likely that it's rumbling around in you and something you should be fighting against, not just somebody else. All covetousness. And I hope you picked up on this also, that verse 15 has a vigilant, militant feel about it. You hear it? Oh, take care. Be on guard against all covetousness. And that's because there is a war going on right now. You realize that? There's a war going on right now, folks, that's uglier and more costly And more confusing than any war that's going on in our world. I know there's a new one brewing. Don't hear me saying it's not upsetting to see it. But you guys, we need to remember, there's a war going on that is uglier and more costly and more confusing than any visible war that ever takes place in our world. It is a spiritual war for our very 
souls. And our enemy, Satan, is leading the charge. A spiritual war. So the stakes are high. And guess what? Money. Money and possessions are one of Satan's favorite devices for distracting us from the main thing. He'd love, he'd love to get you tangled up in a money problem. You realize that? He'd love to get you tangled up in a money problem, either chasing after it, living for it, or worrying about it. There's all kinds of ways for this to mess you up. Chasing after it, living for it, worrying about it. And when that happens, you, you just tend to lose perspective and lose effectiveness in living for what matters most. That's why Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul writing to some new believers in the city of Ephesus. And this city was incredibly immoral. Look at me a minute. Ephesus was incredibly immoral because they had the temple of Diana or Artemis where literally worship services were comprised of having sex with religious prostitutes. So this group of Christians had come out of huge immorality. But that's not the only thing that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was concerned about for them. That's why Ephesians 5, 3 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Oh, or of, say it. Say it louder. We tend to think, oh, sexual immorality. I don't want to get tangled up in that. I don't want to step in that. I want to be on guard. I want to be careful. I hope you think that way. And I think more and more Christians do. I need a filter on my phone. I need some accountability. I need to, I need to have some things in my life, that guardrails. You guys, this verse is saying, as believers, we should approach sexual immorality that way and greed. Both can destroy you. Both can distract you. Both can take you down. Both can render you fairly useless for the kingdom. Or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. That's why it's not just when pastors go down in flames because they've been having sex with a prostitute or a secretary that it's a shame. When some of those national pastors on TV buy their second jet and tell everyone, God told me I need a new jet. When you see believers given over to covetousness, it's just as shameful and destructive and improper. He says these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality and greed. Both. Not just one. God's against them both in the same breath. Notice he puts them together in the same breath where I do believe if we chose to rate sins, we'd think, oh, sexual immorality, big, big, bad sin, greed. Eh, eh. Maybe when I have some free time, I'll think about that, but whatever. God doesn't say whatever. See, God's against both of them in the same breath. He says both should be unthinkable for Christians. And here's what's interesting. The word in the Greek for sexual immorality there is porneia. What word do we get from that? Pornography. Well, the word right there for greed is pleonexia. We get an English word, annex. You know what to annex is? Just push your borders out. I need more. I need more. I need more. It's the annexing of more. I just need a little more. I just need a little more. I just need a little porneia and pleonexia. He puts those two things together and says, oh, take care. Be on guard against both. Why would he put these two things together? I'll tell you why. Because in the same way that porneia, right? Does anyone turn to porn or turn to adultery or fornication or whatever it might look like outside the bounds of what God's given us for sexuality? Does anyone go there to be enslaved or destroyed? No, they get on that path for pleasure and think it will serve them, but it ends up enslaving them and destroying them. Just like porneia can put you on a path that you think will lead to pleasure and freedom, but it ends up owning you, ruling you, and destroying you. Pleonexia, you guys, can put you on a path where you think it just starts out as the simple pleasure of owning 
and enjoying more. What's wrong with that? I just want to own more and enjoy more. What starts off as the simple pleasure of owning and enjoying more can turn into the nightmare of living under the weight of being trapped, trapped under all your stuff and debt and problems and confusion and fear and worry that begins to squeeze the very life out of your soul. It can happen with porneia, sexual immorality, and it can happen with pleonexia, the annexing of more. Listen to me. Here's what you need to realize. Possessions by their very nature put you at risk. Do you realize that? We tend to think, oh, I feel more secure now. I have this. That makes me feel better. Oh, be careful. Possessions by their very nature put you at risk. You say, why, Brad? Because possessions always have the potential to possess you. You realize that? Possessions always have the potential to possess you. So you want to think long and hard about how much stuff you're piling up. Think long and hard about how much stuff you're piling up. I believe it is an indictment against America. And you all live right here in America. It's an indictment against America that even though we live in the biggest houses of anyone in the world. Again, don't put yourself outside of that and say, yeah, there's some people that got big houses. If you've got a 1,200 square foot home, it's huge compared to the rest of the world. Get outside of America. Vicky and I just went to Germany, Switzerland, Austria. I was invited to teach at some conferences in 2019. One of the things that just shocked us are the tiny little homes in Germany, the tiny little homes in Italy, the tiny little homes in... No wonder they sit around in coffee shops. You don't want to be home. I mean, you can hardly fit there with your wife. There has to be outdoor cafes because you don't want to be home. There's almost nothing there. We stayed in this Austrian man's home, you know, Airbnb. Benno was his name. Benno had one closet about this big. And I opened it. Yeah, that's right. And he had six shirts. I was like, oh my word, this man has six shirts. Yeah. Wow. Full confession, I have winter and summer shirts. So sometimes I have to swap them out. Winter's got to go down to a box in the garage and then summer comes up because I can't fit them all on my rod. Benno has six shirts because Benno has this tiny little apartment. We live in the biggest homes of anywhere in the world. And yet, you ready? The storage unit industry. Ooh, here we go. Is a billion. This is starting with a B. Is a billion dollar annual every year industry here in America. If you're wondering what to get into, go storage unit. Go there because we can't fit all our stuff into our big homes. Mm. Mm. Now, some of it is a different problem. You're a hoarder and there's counseling for that. (laughs) You know, your parents left you all their furniture and you can't let it go. Just take pictures of it and let it go. You don't have to store it all. So there's different reasons for that. (laughs) You say, what are you talking about, Brad, when you say... Every possession has the potential to possess you. Here's what I mean. And I'm going to step on some toes, which I never do. Some of you are saying no to ministry opportunities. No to ministry opportunities that are going to affect souls for eternity. Saying you don't have enough time. We can't host a small group. We can't get in a small group. We can't teach a kid's class. We can't counsel someone. We can't get involved in student ministry. We don't have time. But it's because you are so worn out, staying so busy with all your stuff, either playing with it, paying for it, fixing it, or hanging out with others that have the same stuff you do. Don't hear me saying it's a sin to have stuff. You got a camper, great. You know, you got a boat, great. You got a motorcycle, you got a horse. I'm just saying when those things begin to change how you live, and now all we do is camp, all we do is ride horses with other people that have horses, all we do is do four-wheelers, all we do is something's not right. 
Something's not right. What is your stuff doing to you? How is your stuff? Notice how stuff can begin to dictate use of time and stewardship and what you're living for. Some of you in eternity, and it's coming sooner than you think, you guys. Some of you in eternity are going to look back on your life now with regrets and say, I wish I'd lived for what matters most. Five years ago, we sat down, Vicki and I, with a financial planner to just make sure we're okay, right? I thought we were okay. I think we're okay. Let's bring it out of fuzzy land. Are we okay? You know, I don't want to be in a Winnebago in the driveway of one of our five kids with my sewage hose running off in the street there. Wah, 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 wah. Hello, we've got nowhere to go. You know, so let's find out. Let's make sure we're okay. And, and... The team that we were meeting with kept, kept asking us this question. It was their favorite deal. They kept saying, if you aren't doing what you should be doing with your money, when would you want to know about it? Sooner or later? And the whole thing was meant to cause you like, oh, sooner, now, now. And it's true. If you're not doing what you should be doing, when would you want to know about it? And their goal was to get you to invest more towards your retirement. But you guys, Jesus today would be asking us the same question. If you aren't doing what you should be doing with your money, when would you want to know about it? When you stand before him or now? Now, now. And that's why I love it that we're just going through Luke. And hello, we're in Luke 12. And he's talking about money. Because he loves us and he wants us to know now, not later, what should you be doing? How should you be living with your money? And here's the first step towards getting help. I really believe here's the first step towards getting help. Bringing this whole issue of money out of hiding and into the open. I'm old enough that this is a new day where you actually talk to each other about sexual purity. Nobody talked about that. And things didn't get worse. They got better when it became okay to say, how are you doing with sexual purity? Are you looking at porn? Do you have a filter on your phone? Do you, are you being careful? How's it going? Things begin to get better, you guys, when things come out of hiding and into the open. So point number three. I've actually reworded it as I practiced over the weekend. I said, allow other people to speak to you about money. But guess what that means? Someone would need to be trying to do it and you allow them. Very few people will try to speak to you about your money. So now I've reworded it. Cross through allow, if you've got something to write with, and say invite. You're like, are you crazy? No, I'm not. Invite other people. Invite other people to speak into your life about money. We'll ask people about, you know, I want to learn from you. Here's what we call it sometimes, the dumb tax. Help me. There's no reason to keep doing all the dumb things that other people did. You can live and learn. You can do it that way. But I love to ask someone who's ahead of me, hey, what could you tell me about parenting young adults? Hey, what could you tell me about as we head into the season of caring for aging parents? Hey, what could you tell me about? Why don't we go to others and say, hey, what could you tell me about use of money? What have you guys done? How have you tried to balance this saving for retirement, but sending it on ahead into, into kingdom business and using money? Invite others to speak into your life about money. I know it sounds radical, but I want you to look at the problem in verse 17, because there's a big problem in verse 17 that's still a problem today. And he thought to him. Self, what shall I do? What shall I do? He thought to himself. Right here is one of the biggest problems we have that gets us into trouble with money. We just work it out all by ourselves. We don't ask anybody else for godly counsel and stay with me. We don't ask God. Have you ever, you don't have to answer out loud, because it might be embarrassing. 
have you ever asked God what you should do with some money? I just got a bonus. I just got a raise. God, what should we do? Or was it just, oh, and I call it the bump and jump, bump and jump, bump and jump. Oh, now, better car. Now, bigger house. Now, longer vacation. You just assume it's for me. We're going to pleonexia this thing. We're going to expand the borders again, again, again. That's what's going on in verse 17. He doesn't talk to God. He doesn't invite any godly counsel. He just starts making plans. And notice, when you think about it to yourself and make plans all by yourself, where does it usually end up? With you, self. He didn't conclude, you know what? I should give a bunch of this away. You know, there's a ministry I've been wanting to get involved in. Oh, man, there's this person. No. Since he thought about it all by himself, it ended with himself. What about you? Do you ever ask God what he wants you to do with money? And do you ever invite godly counsel from someone to help you? See, I'm of the opinion that we should talk more about it to each other, just like other things. Talk about it to each other. And so I'll start the whole process by telling you what Vicki and I are doing and trying to do and have been trying to do this for a while now. I can relate to all stages of life, you guys. I did not grow up rich. My parents are here today. Did I? No. They taught me to work my butt off. When I was in the seventh grade, my sweet dad, hello, there he is. Wave your little hand. He sat my twin brother and I down, and and I remember being shocked at first. Like, he said, now we're giving you no more money for tennis shoes, for anything. Go through the neighborhood and put little three-by-five cards in mailboxes saying you'll clean gutters, you'll mow, you'll rototill gardens, you'll do whatever. Early on, I was taught, you better make it. I was like, oh. We didn't grow up rich, and I'm actually very grateful. And then as Vicki and I got going, we were in a one-bedroom apartment with furniture that had been given to us, you know, large, overstuffed, out-of-date plaid things. Beautiful. And then we really, we took a big step from the one-bedroom apartment to a trailer. Moving on up to the east side. Yeah. And... So I know all stages, you guys. And in that trailer, we didn't eat meat. We didn't buy pop. We didn't buy Doritos. We had no health care. We went to the clinic for shots for the babies. We got the free cheese and peanut butter from the government for poor people. Hello, we're poor. So I can relate to all stages of life. But all along, I'm so grateful. And I didn't know my parents would be here today. But I'm so grateful. My parents taught me to tithe. And Vicky's parents taught her to tithe. We both grew up in church. My parents were brand new Christians, actually. And they were just hungry. Everything the church was teaching them from God's word, they just laid a hold of it. And they've told me, I mean, my dad did not grow up going to church. And my mom grew up going to a Methodist church that said, you're good. Sinners are out there somewhere doing bad stuff, but you're good. Both of them got saved in a church that taught, oh, no, you're not good. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. That same church began to say, And here's how Jesus tells you to use your money. And they've told me when they heard about tithing, they're like, never in a million years. There's no way we can give 10%. Folks, I've never heard someone's testimony that said, and as we heard about tithing, we thought, sure. We can do that. And so because we think we can, we will. Everybody I hear says they thought, what? And instead said, we're going to trust God. And see how this goes. And I've never heard anyone say, and that was devastating. We had to bring it back. Everybody says, I don't know how it happened, but it happened. It happened. It happened. God will enable your 90% to go further than you ever imagined. And so they taught me. I'm so grateful. At seven years old, when they gave me a dollar for allowance, I remember she used to bust it up and give us dimes so I'd have a dime to give at church. That's 10%. Then when I started mowing lawns and made 10 bucks, I gave one. So then when I got a job at McDonald's and had a paper hat and a black tie, that's how it used to be, not cool. And the paper hat had blue ink and I was the grill man. And so ink would run down in my eyebrows as I'm grilling there with a black tie on. Who thought that was a good idea? And I'm making $110 a week. I gave 11. 
I worked construction, Fox Pool Company, and I gave a tithe. And then when I got my first full-time job as a youth and music guy, making a whopping $20,000, I gave two. But can you imagine how hard it would be to give two if you'd never give a dime, you never gave a dollar, you never gave ten, you never gave... And so I'm grateful to my parents that they taught me. I know some of you didn't get that. But that's not the end. I had this sense within me as I began to understand God's word that, oh, wait a minute, that's not the end. Some people push back and say, well, tithe is law. You're right, it is. It's in the Old Testament. And therefore, we're under a covenant of grace, which is more, not less. Gotcha. People love to say, well, that's the law. We're under grace. That's why I'm giving nothing. Shut up. (laughs) Everything when when Jesus compares law to what he's given us, notice in Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, does he make it less or more? If you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed. Why? Because you have God's grace. You have his spirit. Therefore, you can do more, not less. So under the covenant of grace, it's lavish. I have a robe of righteousness. His grace is so rich to me. Therefore, I want to move it, move it, move it towards more. But it took time. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying, oh, in just the next year, we, we gave more than 10%. You got to plan on it. You got to make plans. You got to think it through. You got to be intentional. It will not just happen. You'll never drift into glorifying God with your finances. It'll have to be intentional with some thought and some plans. So Vicki and I have been growing our giving and trying to move it past 10% for years now. And some of you that are like, yeah, but you think your situation with five kids in college. But notice they didn't go to Texas A&M. No, NKU Norseman. Hello, I said to each kid, here's what I can do. You pay the difference. Decide where you want to go. Ah, NKU. I'm not paying gazillions of dollars for you to go to some school. I don't have to. You don't have to. News alert. You don't have to fly all over the country with them. And, oh, she picked in California. No. Right here. Right here. And we got five kids through college without me going in debt. We got three kids through braces. And we kept... Tithing while we did this. Kids and break. Wait till you get to that teenage season if you got little kids where you're trying to keep a fleet of used cars insured and full of gas. And if you've got boys, buckle up. The insurance company knows what's about to happen. And they just stick it to you for boys. I was so glad when each of my sons hit 25. Oh, insurance went. Because they're stupid. One of my sons was out there on that lower lot, right in on our church park, on the grass down there, doing donuts round and round. I didn't know it. I just knew that his dashboard vibrated and the, and the glove box was hanging open now. And I'm like, this was a nice used car when I bought it for you. One of the other kids said, Dad, Harrison goes down there and he does donuts round and round that rough field at church. Oh, thank you very much, Harrison. <laughs> like, I was going to use this gold Corolla with every teenager. Do not destroy it. They know what boys do. And they'll stick it to you. But we got through college. We got through braces. We got through insuring used vehicles and filling them up. Tithing at the same time. Tithing at the same time. And each year we've tried to grow it to where for quite a while now we give about 15% here to Grace Fellowship and another 5% or more to other great ministries. Other great, and there's so many great ministries, you guys, and they all need money. I hope you know it takes money to do ministry. They all need money. I'm not ashamed to tell you that. Like Scarlet Hope trying to reach dancers in the clubs. They need money to do what they're doing. Young Life going into the high schools and sharing the gospel with kids who are not coming from Christian families. Campus Outreach at UC doing a phenomenal job of reaching kids. We got three young men in our small group that all were saved in 2019. God is still saving people. Bright, sharp, engineer-to-be kind of guys that got saved because of Ampus campus outreach, but someone had to be funding the people walking around campus doing this. You could get in on what God is doing. This is not guilt. This is opportunity. Oh my goodness. There's great ministries that we get. And then 
we have the joy of actually helping, even though you get no tax credit for this, whatever. It, I'm gonna have my reward from God, helping people with house payments, a medical bill, a need in our church. And we have it because we've set aside, we planned on it. We made plans to be able to do this. In fact, by God's grace, it is quite shocking to me. I haven't even dug into or tried to keep a record of, I've been tithing since I was seven, so I don't know what it would be. But I do know since I came here 26 years ago to become your lead pastor, in 26 years, since January 1st, 1996, by the grace of God, with five kids, Vicki and I have now given away $544,000. A half a mil- I would never in a million years have thought we. She's never worked outside the home full time. She worked as a secretary in a, in a doctor's office the first two years of our marriage so that I could pay off my $8,000 student loan. And after that, she's been a mom and she's been a great pastor's wife. And the two of us, by God's grace, have given away a half a million dollars. And I'm not dead yet. Imagine what could happen. But it's because as my book is sold and I've gotten royalties and as I begin to be asked to speak places, we didn't say, that's all for us. The more I began that God began to send our way, we just tried to keep our lifestyle fairly the same. We've bumped it up some. We eat out more than we used to eat out. We can go places and I can go two days early where I'm teaching. We can get an Airbnb. So don't hear me saying we've done nothing different. We still love living like paupers. We have done some things different but not all we could be doing, right? Because I never thought this is all for us. It's not all for us. So what a joy. Now, some of you right now are thinking, why in the world would you tell us what you have given? Big, no, no, buddy. You just lost your entire reward. Let me tell you something. I think that verse in Matthew 6 has become a smokescreen and has been misused by Christians forever and is actually one of the biggest reasons that giving and covetousness is such a problem with Christians because it's like, oh, we can't talk about it. And everyone's like, great, don't want to talk about it. Now I can do what I want to do. I'm talking about that passage in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the passage I'm talking about? Where Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Here's the key phrase, you guys, in order to be seen by them. It's a henna clause that means the only reason you're doing it is to be seen and well thought of. It's a heart issue. So let me help you. You can give money. I give money to people and I don't put it in an envelope and slide it under the door or drive by and sling it in the yard. I just give it to them and they know it's from us. I just say, God laid you on my heart. Do you have something going on? And never, no one's ever said no. There's always something going on. And I'm thrilled by the timing very often as I reach out on some of these situations. And they know it was Vicky and me. We have not lost our reward because I am so excited about giving. And I'm so excited about blessing people. And I'm so excited about sending a bunch of this on ahead and investing in kingdom business. It's a heart issue. If you give wanting to be well thought of right then, bam, there's your reward. So if you can't give without wanting to be well thought of, please keep it a secret. But if you can do this without a wrong motive, this does not have to be a secret. It says, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. I don't sound a trumpet before me. I give it. But especially as a pastor, I feel that it's great for me to give you an example and talk about what we're doing instead of just saying, you should, you should, you should, and leave you all wondering, does he? You don't lose your reward, you guys. Randy Alcorn says, it's increasingly common for Christians to ask one another the tough questions. How's your marriage? How are you, are you spending time in the word? How are you doing in terms of sexual purity? Have you been sharing your faith? How often do we ask, how much are you giving to the Lord? Are you robbing God? Are you winning the battle against materialism? When it comes to giving, churches operate under a don't ask, don't tell policy. It's as if we have an unspoken agreement. I won't talk about it if you won't so that we can go right on living as we are. And quickly, let me give you a final 
final takeaway of how to fight. Number four, don't ignore the most important money principle of all. You realize the most important money principle of all is right here in this passage? You know what it is? Look at me. Death will separate you and your money forever. As long as there's been people, it's been doing this. There's not a single exception of someone. Oh, no, that death will separate you and your money forever. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that every single possession and every single penny you accumulate will be left behind. You're not taking any of it with you. And if you only knew, it's just discouraging when you see how kids sometimes spend the money that their parents work their tail off for. Go ahead and give a bunch of it away in kingdom business. Don't leave it all to your kids. I'm going to leave them some, but not much. A bunch of them are adults now listening from Fort Thomas. That's right. Work hard because you're not getting millions from Papa. We'll help you some. It's like that does them no good. That does them no good. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 20. It starts with a big but God. Those are two of my favorite words, but oh, depending on what follows those two words, it's either thrilling, but God who is rich in mercy, has made us alive. That's Ephesians 2. Right here, it's but God. And it's quite sobering. But God said to him, Fool, this night, your soul will be required of you. And these things you've prepared, whose will they be? Somebody else is going to get it. Somebody else is going to get it. Listen to me. You can make a lot of mistakes in this life and still survive. It is a fatal miscalculation to live with your time and money as if this life is all there is. Fatal miscalculation. Don't, don't do it. And so I want to give you some homework as we close. I want it to get practical. I don't want you to feel convicted or encouraged, whatever the case may be. Let's get practical with some homework. I got three assignments for you. Number one, this between you and God, unless you want to come up and tell me, now that we've said that's okay. Between you and God, I want you to write down what percentage of your income do you think you gave away last year? I want you to guess. Just take a guess. For some of you, it's easy. Zero. But others, it may be like, all right, guess what percentage? Number two, do not do number one without doing number two. Go home, look it up, dig around, check, figure it out, see what it really was. Because here's what I've discovered, you guys. Believers have good hearts. He's changed our hearts, right? But here's what I discovered. What Christians intend to do and think they've done is often very different than what they're actually doing. It just never made it into real time. Oh, yeah, we thought about, we talked about, we intend to. Have you done it? Have you done it? What Christians intend to do and think about is often very different than what they're doing. Close the gap between what you think about and intend to do and are actually doing. And then, number three, show the little card chart if you would. Find yourself on... The chart with our Grace Fellowship Church family. I am unashamedly asking you to consider giving us. If you say this is your church family, you just heard me say I make a house payment for someone, pay a medical bill. What would you think about me if I was doing that, but I wasn't taking care of my own family? If you call this your church family and you say, oh man, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. God is feeding us, helping us, encouraging. We've got counseling here. We've got support your church family. Don't give it all to us. I don't give all mine here, but start here, start here. And you can see we're grateful. We've had hundreds of people added to our church family over the last two years. Well, we've got hundreds of people that have never given for the first time. So you could get on the church chart by just giving, but then find yourself. There's some people that just give every now and then once in a blue moon. If that's you consider being a regular giver, which usually means lock it in. Go to push pay and say, I'm going to give $100 a month or whatever. Now it's regular. 
maybe you've been regular and you've heard about tithing before and you're like, oh my, go slow. Say, we're going to increase it a couple percentages. Figure out how you would do that and move towards tithing and then get excited about extravagant grace giving. You may not be able to do it now. It may not be for 10 years that you can do it. I got excited about extravagant grace giving about 20 years before we could do it. But I had it on my mind. And when that day arrived, I'd made plans by not moving to a bigger house, by not driving a Mercedes sport utility vehicle, by not, and then we could. We've got people in all these categories. So all I want you to think about is step on the gas pedal and move forward. Increase. Wherever you are, increase your giving. Oh, listen to me. Pen and paper can bring, can bring you out of the land of make-believe into the light of reality. What is really going on? Because listen to me, on that final day, you and what you've been doing with your money will be in the light of reality. It won't be hidden anymore. If you weren't doing what you should be doing, when would you want to know? Oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you. Thank you for speaking to us on every issue. Sexuality, possessions, money, communication, workplace, parenting, marriage. Thank you for not leaving an area like money unaddressed. Because we handle it so much and our enemy uses it so much to ensnare, entangle, and destroy. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your help. Empower us to live radically different, including with our money. We pray in Jesus' name.